0: Welcome to Bending the Arc, a podcast series that explores the everyday work of creating inclusive, equitable, and racially just communities. I'm Mark Joseph and I host and produce this podcast along with my colleagues at the National Initiative on Mixed Income Communities at Case Western Reserve University. Today we have another installment in a special series of episodes focused on Urban Strategies, Inc., a national nonprofit that exemplifies the quest for urban equity and inclusion. In neighborhoods across the country that are undergoing a physical revitalization, Urban Strategies is serving as the social impact partner, designing and implementing place-based human capital strategies to ensure that all families impacted by the redevelopment are stable and thriving. USI stands out for the longevity, scale and depth of its family-by-family work in high-poverty neighborhoods from coast to coast, as well as its leadership of the Choice Means Choice national network of place-based initiatives. Led by executives of color and staffed largely by people of color, USI is also exemplary for its explicit commitment to disrupting structurally racist practices and policies. Founded in 1978, And based in St. Louis, Missouri, today Urban Strategies works with more than 30,000 low to moderate income families in 41 communities across 24 major metropolitan areas. In this special series, our USI guests are sharing their strategic innovations, lessons learned, challenges faced, and best thinking about the policy changes needed to achieve greater impact on racial and economic inequities. If you haven't yet listened to the opening episode where I discuss USI's origin story with Erica Wilson and Marlene Hodges, I encourage you to go back and listen to that one first and then come back to this one. Today, I will talk with two USI board members and the USI president about a vital housing policy initiative recently updated and released for public comment by the Biden administration and the implications for USI and the field of housing and community development. Richard Barron is the founding chair of the Board of Urban Strategies. He'll be well known to many of you as the co-founder and chairman of McCormick Barron Salazar, one of the nation's premier real estate companies pioneering in affordable and mixed income housing since 1973. It's no overstatement to credit Richard's vision, determination, and savvy for the creation and growth of the mixed-income model of urban revitalization in America. Michael Bowen is also a board member at USI and the president of the Revitalization Strategies Group, which he established in 2015. His expertise is in public housing financing and redevelopment, and he has worked for multiple development companies along with public housing authorities in Cleveland and in Pittsburgh. And Esther Shin has been at Urban Strategies Inc. for virtually her entire illustrious career in housing and community development. She joined USI as a project manager 23 years ago, became a senior vice president, then executive vice president, eventually taking over as president in 2017. Under her leadership, USI has not only expanded its national portfolio of cities and neighborhood initiatives, but she and her colleagues have expanded USI's role as a national thought leader and policy advocate, which leads us to this podcast series and this particular episode on the Affirmatively Furthering Fair Housing Rule and its implications for equity and inclusion in cities and regions across the U.S. Let's learn more from our USI guests. Richard Barron, Michael Bowen, and Esther Shin, welcome to Bending the Arc.
1: Thank you, Mark. Happy to be here.
0: Thank you so much, Mark. Looking
1: forward to the conversation. It's a very important one to have.
0: Excellent. Appreciate you all being here. And uh, I can see you all since we're connected on Zoom together. It's great to see you. Esther, it's been a little while. Richard, it's been a couple years, a few years. Really good to see you. And you're looking great. And Michael, nice to meet you for the first time. Same here. Thank you. Well, as you know, this podcast episode is part of a series we're doing on Urban Strategies, Inc., and the impact you all are having in the community development field as practitioners and as thought leaders. And you've asked us to dedicate one of these episodes to the topic of the recently released AFFH rule, the Affirmatively Furthering Fair Housing Policy. So this is a vital area of federal housing policy, which really undergirds and shapes the quest for producing affordable housing, and more specifically where that housing is located. So I'm really eager to hear your perspectives on this. Before we get to the topic at hand, let's hear a little bit more about each of you and your roles at Urban Strategies. I've already reviewed your impressive bios with the audience. So just let's learn a little bit more about each of you in your own words. And Richard, let's start with you. You will be well-known to many of our listeners as a pioneering visionary of affordable housing and community development, and in particular as the mixed-income housing guru, but many might not know about your role founding Urban Strategies, so I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that.
2: Well, I think it's probably best to start back at the beginning when I uh, arrived in St. Louis uh, in 1968 on a Legal Services Fellowship. Within about five months, became embroiled in a rent strike against the St. Louis Housing Authority. All of that uh, uh, ultimately was uh, uh, culminated in mediating uh, the strike by Harold Gibbons of local 688 of the Teamsters, who was a very well-respected labor leader in St. Louis by both the white and black communities. The mayor asked him to intervene because it was a real worry there'd be a real. Uh, conflagration in the public housing sites in St. Louis. And uh, uh, we had withheld rents. And uh, the story uh, has been told in uh, Envisioning Home. That was done Mm -hmm. by a a professor at St. Louis University who uh, did a film. The important thing is, is that uh, through that effort, uh, the Ford Foundation got involved with us and ultimately part of the rent strike settlement uh, provided that the tenants would get a chance to do self-management at their sites, uh, replacing the housing authority uh, because the feeling was they could do uh, either uh, as well or as bad as the housing authority and why not have the residents themselves who were there through the weekends be uh, in charge. So we got several Ford Foundation grants and ultimately uh, took on tenant management uh, in the early 70s. I continued to work with the tenant organizations. I did all the training. And uh, it was really through those experiences that I got to uh, really understand more about the uh, lack of services in the communities, Mm. kinds of issues that were very, very important to uh, the residents. We did the first infant care centers in Missouri, in the first floors of the high-rise public housing buildings that had all been vandalized. Um, And actually, uh, you'll be interested to this, Mark, that uh, our program officer from Ford, who oversaw the Infant Care Center program, was Susan Beresford. Mm -hmm. Obviously, Mm -hmm. later on, took over the foundation. The entire
0: foundation, that's right. Yeah, yeah.
2: And she cut her teeth on public housing in St. Louis.
0: I never knew that. But the...
2: uh, the evolution of urban really grew out of my experiences working with the tenant management organizations. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so the focus on childcare, uh, job training, after school programming, uh, working with the local schools that were uh, uh, where our public housing kids went. Um, we created a whole new curriculum uh, with a grant from the Danforth Foundation back then. Uh, we did. Uh, new math curriculum that involved uh, energy. And, and we did visits to the uh, uh, plants and the public housing sites with the engineers who explained how mm-hmm. the heat was generated. Um, we did grow labs in vacant apartments where kids had their own plants that they they, uh, they planted and the science teachers would come over into the sites. And it really broke down the barrier between the school's and the public housing sites that were adjacent to them. And all of that, uh, ultimately, uh, when I started McCormick Barron in 1973, um, and we started doing the larger uh, mixed-income programs in uh, St. Louis, and uh, as things started to evolve with the uh, HOPE Six program that we were very involved in writing with uh, Bruce Katz and some of the assistant secretaries, with Cisneros, um, it was very obvious to me that I needed to create some sort of a nonprofit that would work with families and kids in these developments. Mm -hmm. And so I started Urban Strategies in the late 70s. We did a lot of research with it. More importantly, it was a way of taking a lot of the lessons learned from my experiences with the public housing families as part of the tenant management program Uh, that was actually expanded by the Ford Foundation with H.R. Crawford at HUD and went national. And so I was working in Newark and Rochester and New Orleans. The programs that we implemented in St. Louis uh, really were the, uh, I guess, underpinning for what Urban started doing in these sites. And so the uh, wonderful work uh, that uh, Sandy Moore and Esther did, and now Esther and Donovan, Don and and Michael's on our board, uh, really mirrored a lot of what I was doing in the 70s with the tenants looking for foundation funding and trying to implement these programs uh, as part of a management program at these sites. So that's really the history there. And it was in that period in the 70s when I met Marlene. Was living in one of our developments. Mm-hmm. and uh, but, but all of this work uh, that Urban does now so beautifully um, is really an extension of, of what we started. And of course, they've taken it to new levels and new heights and have done extraordinary, great work across the country. But it was really that early learning that I did uh, as a legal services attorney and subsequently working as a Consultant to the tenant organizations uh, that gave me the idea for creating urban. And uh, actually, I would go back to the Ford Foundation to look for grant money for some of these programs. And the senior program officer at Ford back then, Anita Miller, who was like the godmother of all this, mm-hmm. said to me, Richard, for God's sakes, you're a private development company. We don't make grants to private developers, set up a nonprofit. Uh-huh. And she said, "Get a get a C three, and we can we can fund them." Got so it. that's why I created Urban in the first place. Got and, it. And uh, it's you know moved on to bigger and better things. But uh,
0: that's just some background that might be uh, a little more useful to you. Super helpful. And I didn't realize the kind of tenant leadership in the dna of those early days which really makes a lot of sense of why that's carried through as a value and principle of urban to have residents at the center and really uh, build on resident leadership and you mentioned marlene who the listeners who have listened to the origin story podcast will have met marlene hodges and if you haven't listened to that podcast yet we uh, encourage you to go back and listen also richard mentioned envisioning home And we'll provide a link to more information about that in the podcast notes. It's a great movie documentary that was put together uh, telling some of the history uh, and putting a lot of the flavor uh, and uh, dynamics behind what you just heard Richard summarize. Great. Well, let's turn to you, Michael. Uh, Tell us a little bit more. As Richard mentioned, you're a board member at Urban. How did you get involved with Urban Strategies?
1: My first intro to both McCormick Barron and urban was my first job in the field working in Pittsburgh in hmm. uh, 1997 um, with the Pittsburgh Housing Authority as we were implementing various hope 6 initiatives throughout the city. Um, and then I had a very good fortune to meet um, McCormick Barron and the, and the urban team and just saw firsthand how the impact they were making on neighborhoods. Uh, and connecting public housing authority to all the opportunities um, that the community offers. Um, One thing that stood out is that even though um, public housing authorities through location are often in great locations near downtown, but they're isolated, even though they're in these great locations. Mm -hmm. And we're isolated through services, uh, we're isolated through the resources provided to our schools, and we're also isolating the resources that we take advantage of to maintain the above housing. And so seeing their work in Pittsburgh made me an obvious fan. And then once I transitioned to Cleveland, working with the Housing Authority, we were able to reconnect and work um, at Valley View Estates, which is now Tremont Point. Mm-hmm. And that's where I met Esther. <laughs> um, and then also met Donovan at the property. And as Richard was coming in town and using his reputation and track record to convince the city and the various foundations to prioritize Valley View, Esther and I were knocking on doors and engaging residents and making sure they're aware of the plans and taking advantage of the opportunities that will come their way. And so it was good to see kind of from the outside perspective in Pittsburgh and now seeing firsthand the work and the hard work that's involved in Cleveland, particularly at Valley View. We're trying to do, and years later, I was invited by Esther and Donovan and Richard to join the board, and it was really a continuation of the work from Pittsburgh, Cleveland, and now that I'm in Dallas, trying to you know help long-term families get quality housing and quality work environments, and you know the work that Urban does, and that we get to support is truly um, groundbreaking. Um, working with families like at Perkin homes in Baltimore while also once lived and work, seeing how, again, years there were the residents were isolated and not made a priority. And now seeing the work of urban uh, connecting families to the jobs in Baltimore and seeing the increased rate of employment participation, seeing the real dollars flowing to residents through better jobs and seeing the homeownership ownership opportunity. You see the work And the reason why, when we make these investments, the benefits to residents and communities
0: they're able to receive. Great. Thank you, Michael. And great to have you with us today. Both you and Richard have mentioned Donovan Duncan. And so uh, the listeners will get to meet him in an upcoming podcast episode. So uh, get ready for that, listeners. (laughs) I'm going to get ready for that one. Uh, But Donovan is the Executive Vice President at Urban Strategies and uh, fellow Cleveland guy. So we are... Very proud that he still maintains his home here in Cleveland. Uh, you also both mentioned Hope Six, and many of our listeners will be very familiar with Hope Six, but we've got a lot of folks who may not. Um, and and Richard, I know you were there at the very like single-handedly <laughs> bringing that thing through the federal government. Uh, those of you who are familiar with Choice Neighborhoods uh, will understand that Cho- Hope Six was the precursor. So from 1992 to 2010, that was the federal mixed income housing uh, strategy and initiative. And then in 2010, it was replaced with Choice Neighborhoods that expanded it. Um, So that was a a crucial program back in the early 90s into the 2000s to promote and finance mixed income housing. All right, Esther Shin, let's turn to you. You've been at Urban Strategies for almost 25 years now, uh, and you took over as president uh, in 2017. You took over from your mentor, Sandy Moore, who Richard mentioned a moment ago, a pioneering, visionary, dynamic leader in her own right. And as Richard mentioned, you have taken the organization to another level, new realms and heights that we probably couldn't have imagined a few years ago. So share a little bit about your own journey into the leadership role at Urban.
3: Sure. Happy to. So. I had just graduated in 1998 from the George Warren Brown School of Social Work at Washington University in St. Louis, and I had conducted one of my internships was a community development internship in a community in St. Louis, and quite honestly, I had not anticipated that I would jump back into the community development field upon graduation. I thought I was actually going to be doing research. Hmm. And so I had gone back to the neighborhood where I had done my internship and there was a very large neighborhood celebration taking place. It was a kickoff of sorts of a master planning effort in a community near the Washington University Medical Center. And that is where I met Richard. And after 60 seconds, I I love to tell this story to folks, you know, after 60 seconds, Richard offered me a job. Wow. And I was fortunate that for that offer right and for that opportunity because it has opened up an entire universe of Mm. different experiences and opportunities to serve Mm. and so with that opportunity yes and I, i will never forget it was in september of 1998 september 19th when i started And uh, I was technically a McCormick Barron employee uh, because at the time, Urban Strategies was not a full operating organization until Sandy Moore. She said my mentor and my friend came on board and there were four of us that worked in two communities in St. Louis. And Sandy's vision was to go national, that there were many communities around the country that really, really could use our kind of expertise. And so from there, when, by the time Sandy left USI at the end of 2016, we had gone from working two neighborhoods in St. Louis to working in 12 states across the country with 78 employees. Mm-hmm. Now today, we are working in 24 states, including Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands, and have almost 170 employees. Wow. And so yes a lot of growth and and when I started at Urban I started out as a community organizer educating um, informing families of their rights because it was the time of welfare reform the clinton welfare reform and so a lot of misinformation out there not not too different from today um you know a lot of misinformation and so going around and assisting families with the the new world um the change of benefits from from what had been you know assistance for families to what then became temporary assistance mm-hmm. and so that was my start really as a community organizer. And so in 25 years, have done everything from community organizing to folks will get to meet Donovan, but in his role uh, most recently under Sandy. And so have pretty much done and seen everything from you know operating a farmer's market on the weekends one summer to helping to build neighborhood schools. And so, you know, as I, as I said before, you know, I, this opportunity has afforded me all kinds of experiences and the ability to meet all kinds of individuals and families that we've been serving for 45 years. I've been extremely blessed um, with the, uh, the leadership that I have served under, the families that I've been able to serve, and the team members that ha- I have been surrounded by.
0: Beautiful. Well, as I mentioned, folks know about Richard Barron uh, as a real estate visionary. They may not know about him as a talent spotter. 60 seconds to spot that guy is is not a bad record. Uh, That is amazing, Esther, that the story played out that way. All right, Esther, help me frame the conversation for today. So you all wanted to talk about catalytic housing change. And then this AFFH, Affirmatively Furthering Fair Housing Policy. So let's start with that first phrase, catalytic housing change. What do you mean by that? What are you wanting to convey to our listeners with that phrase?
3: Sure. So, you know, at, at one point, the, our organizational vision was really to go national. Aid. And since I've assumed this role, one component to my vision for this organization is that we really decrease the racial wealth gap whether by policy, uh, whether by programming and utilizing our practitioner experience to really inform how the racial wealth gap could decrease. The reality of it is, is that there was one point in this country's time when having a home mm-hmm. was a significant asset. Mm-hmm. And it was a significant asset that the government interceded and assisted in supporting when you look at, you know, the GI bill and other, other policies that really supported the growth of a family and owning something and being able to pass that on and create generational wealth Mm -hmm. that doesn't exist anymore. Um, And especially for African-American families, families of color um, that are challenged by, you know, a lot of the things that, Have been, you know, common conversations. I think in communities for years. Redlining, credit, right? Credit is something that was only created in the eighties, and we have a lot of families who pay rent on time and are not getting credit Mm -hmm. for paying that rent on time, and so there's no clear avenue for how those families will create generational wealth. Mm -hmm. And so, when we think about systems and housing systems. Housing is a really quick way to build generational wealth and to build assets in, in families. And so really leveraging something as solid and as critical, you know, it's a critical basic need, translating that to something that can help decrease the racial wealth gap is, I, I think, extremely, extremely important. It's an important thing to leverage.
0: Mm-hmm. Great. So I'm understanding the phrase catalytic housing change to mean housing as a catalyst for wealth building housing, not just as shelter uh, and not just as let's focus on making sure folks are in quality housing, but are folks in housing which can catalyze transformation in their lives, transformize economic opportunity. Richard, let me turn to you. What does that phrase catalytic housing change mean to you? And what would you add to what Esther said so far?
2: Well, I think she's outlined, I think, the challenge. Um, and of course, in our situation, um, we have uh, always felt that housing was really a platform to stabilize families mm-hmm. and kids, to give them an opportunity to uh, really excel. And uh, often, uh, as we've worked across the country and have been very involved with schools, uh, one of the things that has always been a real problem is the fact that the mobility of families, because they've been underhoused and poorly housed, who move from place to place, whether they're in shelters or they're in substandard housing, has created a real problem for their kids in terms of schools because there's no stability. And uh, I think that some of the data uh, you know that we've seen over the years is that kids, you know you take a class in the third or fourth grade of an elementary school in an inner city neighborhood, And if half of those kids are still in class Mm -hmm. in June after they started in September, it's considered a victory. That's right. Because they lose so many children that really don't have a chance to learn. And, of Mm -hmm. course, the pandemic has just exacerbated the problem. You know, in terms of wealth creation, um, you know, we have been dealing with the problem of redlining. Uh, Certainly when I started at legal services, I was dealing with it all the time. Uh, And the whole idea of public housing at one point was that the working poor were supposed to be there. And the theory was that that at some point, as their wages increased, they would be able to uh, be involved in a a federally insured mortgage. And uh, mortgage companies and the HUD folks uh, redlined many neighborhoods so that people weren't really able to get homes uh, and so that has always been a challenge in the United States. Uh, going back to the Kerner Report, 1968, I show my age. And uh, we've been looking at this problem for decades. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, as Esther says, it, it certainly hasn't gotten any better. And uh, of course, with the Community Reinvestment Act, uh, there was some movement with the lending institutions. Uh, certainly, in terms of the tax credit program and investments, uh, but the the challenge of creating home ownership uh, for families of color has always been a challenge in the United States, and it's still a major one today. For sure,
0: you've both mentioned redlining, and by now, most of our listeners would be very, very familiar with this story. But it's just important to pause here because it's going to come up again as we talk about the AFFH policy and what it's trying to undo, is that the segregation and the geographic disparity that we see in our neighborhoods and our cities today didn't just happen. It was designed. It was designed with intention, and it was designed with intention with racial exclusion undergirding it. And that's why we talk about redlining, where certain communities were designated as good investment communities, those were the green communities, and other communities were designated as risky communities to invest in by the federal government. And that those communities that were designated as risky were those that were communities of color. And that is explicitly stated when you go back and look at the redlining language uh, from back in those days. And so this is the history that we've been given. But as you mentioned, Richard, that inequity has now stayed stark and extremely wired in in our cities. And so that when you look at maps today of disparities, whether it be health disparities or unemployment disparities or housing condition disparities, they line up almost perfectly with the redlining maps from decades ago. And so that that has just been built in. And so what we're going to be talking about today is a policy that's being lifted up to really try to undo some of that that uh, inequity. Michael, let me turn to you just again on this phrase, catalytic housing change. What does that spark in your own mind? What does that bring to mind for you?
1: Catalytic change for me, it definitely mirrors um, what Esther and Richard just said about um, how do we put emphasis on the individual family, how we create wealth, um, focus on the whole entire household. But in addition, I I think about the neighborhood as well Mm -hmm. and how, through these investments, we also improve the entire neighborhood. Looking um, back at um, the work that we all did in uh, Valley View, now Tremont Point, um, we were planning the development. We had talked about the era around Valley View and the things that could occur once Valley View was redeveloped. And, you know, years later, you see those things actually happen. And so you, you created that opportunity to create more retail, which create more jobs, which create more family sustaining opportunities, um, again, all focus on that initial investment. And so I like to share the focus on individual family on a micro level, but also look at the macro
0: level benefits as well, what these investments produce. Exactly. So then the housing that we're talking about investing in can be catalytic for families and their own stability and then economic thriving, but it can also be catalytic for the neighborhood. And it can also then kick off a series of changes and investments in that neighborhood. All right, great. So we want to promote catalytic housing change. And now we've got this recent re-release of a policy out of the Biden administration on affirmatively furthering fair housing. So what is that all about? Let's bring our listeners up to speed a little bit. Kathy O'Regan and Ken Zimmerman of NYU's Furman Center wrote an essay about the AFFH rule for our What Works volume on inclusive and equitable mixed income communities. So we'll link that essay in the notes to the podcast so listeners can take a look at that. Kathy had previously served as the assistant secretary for policy development and research at HUD. And in the essay, Kathy and Ken referred to the creation of the AFFH rule as, quote, perhaps the most significant fair housing initiative of the Obama administration. They went on to say, "This rule reflects new learning and a refined approach to the core challenge of remedying ongoing housing and development barriers that perpetuate spatial disparities and opportunity, and it represents an important planning tool for creating equitable and inclusive communities unquote." So that's how they framed it. Let's just put that in a little bit of historical context for our listeners. In 1968. When Congress enacted the Fair Housing Act, uh, Richard, you were talking about dating yourself, but my friend, this is all stuff that you could uh, tell us, some of the, the literal on-the-ground battles of making this stuff happen. Um, but the Fair Housing Act included a requirement for the federal government to not only prevent future discrimination, but to take, quote, affirmative steps to overcome the legacy and the impact of past racial discrimination in housing. So thus, the FHA mandate, the mandate in this Fair Housing Act, was to, quote, affirmatively further fair housing. So that's where we get to AFFH. Now, over its 50 years, this mandate has faced many roadblocks, as our listeners could imagine, to its implementation. It's also suffered from a lack of clarity and a lack of accountability from the federal government. So the AFFH rule that was issued by the Obama administration in 2015 sought to dramatically elevate the rule's influence and its impact. Then in 2018, the Trump administration suspended the implementation of the rule and it cited plans to revise the legislation. All right, now we come to February of just this past year. The Biden administration released a revised AFFH rule with public comment that was just due a couple months ago in April. And HUD's public statement introducing the new revised rule explained the following, quote, The proposed rule is intended to foster local commitment to addressing local and regional fair housing issues, to develop innovative solutions to inequities that have plagued our society for far too long. The proposed rule is meant to provide the tools that HUD, together with other federal, state, and local agencies, As well as public housing agencies can use to overcome centuries of separate and unequal access to housing opportunity. The rule proposes refinements informed by lessons that HUD learned from its implementation of the 2015 rule. So, really, it's like learning the lessons of 2015 and applying them and updating them now in 2023 and incorporating feedback that was provided by the states and localities across the country. And with stakeholder input so the bipartisan policy center which is based in dc has identified five key improvements in this new released revision of the rule number one they said that it streamlines grantees fair housing analysis obligations so what are they required to analyze as they lay out their fair housing plans secondly It prioritizes the setting of realistic and meaningful fair housing goals. Third, it provides flexibility for participants to design and execute their equity plans. Fourth, it increases public transparency into HUD's review process. And then finally, number five, it strengthens mechanisms for accountability, evaluation, and enforcement. All right. So we've got this newly revised rule. And Esther, coming back to you. Why did you want to focus one of your podcast conversations on this issue of the rule?
3: So a few reasons. You know, one, this is a this is a critical policy. Anything that seeks to dismantle historic oppression through a system, historic racist oppression through a system like housing is always going to be beneficial. Why I really wanted us to speak to it are the things that AFFH does not do or currently does not speak to, hmm. um, and not because it's it's not it's not so much that it's not speaking to the discrimination component. What concerns me are resources. So one, this is a policy that primarily targets a system that is already under resourced it does not put any the onus of any anti-discrimination policies in the to the private sector investors banks right where equity for housing comes from mm. the onus largely is put on bureaucracies that are largely under-resourced and this is largely um, these tools are technical tools and and one of the things that concerns me is do these systems have the capacity to really take on these five components? Because the reality of it is, is that, you know, in the in these communities, housing authorities, you know, well, let's be honest, don't have a lot. They don't have a lot. Um, you know, there, are from what I recall, the National Low Income Housing Coalition. So there is 11 million unit affordable housing shortage. Mm this tool it's an important tool it needs to be resourced and it needs to be resourced with not only dollars but also capacity mm-hmm. because what does real engagement look like i i don't think that all communities know what that means and oftentimes do not know where it start where to start from i also think that this it is critical that this housing component be connected to other critical systems, health, education. Because you know, for example, if I am a family that's on housing assistance and I have to decide whether or not to pay my utilities or pay for childcare, and I have to choose between that and working because I might use my, lose my housing benefit, those are systems that are not speaking to one another and does not speak to the root of the discrimination piece. Right? These are individuals that, and families that are have not only been discriminated against with by housing, but mm-hmm. other large scale mm-hmm. systems that are intrinsically connected to one another. So it is important that all these other systems find some way to support and build the capacity around this really critical policy. Mm-hmm. So those are some of the reasons why I really wanted to talk about this.
0: Thanks, Esther. Uh, Michael, I'm going to come to you next just to summarize where we are. So, Esther, I'm hearing you say the rule is important, that the revisions are helpful. It's providing clarity about what is required by the Fair Housing Act. It's adding some accountability. And as you said, it's a technical Approach, right? It gets some, uh, provides technical capacity around data and some metrics and so on. But you lifted up a few key challenges, including resources. So then, where are the resources to enable localities to follow through on this? And then you talked about the need to connect across systems. So this addresses disparities and inequities within housing, but we've got issues within health and education and criminal justice and other systems. So lifted up a couple challenges that we can loop back to. Michael, what would you add uh, and what would you want listeners to to know and think about in terms of this revised AFFH rule?
1: Yeah, I think I echo what Esther mentioned about um, the importance of the fair housing program, but also making sure that we reach all the vital components. My perspective on the day to day really hits like some of the efforts with the fair, um housing choice voucher, the Section 8 families who have vouchers. Mm-hmm. And the theory of, of the voucher is that you can select any place you want to live using that voucher. But I see every day here in Dallas, that's not reality. Um, a lot of times the landlords just don't accept the Section 8 voucher. So even though, in theory, we have this resource that can promote this type of inclusion breaking out barriers in practicality is very difficult to implement and as esther mentioned sometimes when the families do move out to these locations uh, what about the schools and the healthcare and the other important items the family need they simply aren't provided and so um i do like the idea that the um program is talking about flexibility and accountability and the reporting requirements but um I would love to see more emphasis on the neighborhoods that we're trying to invest in and improve because that's really going to give us the biggest bang for our buck, um, bringing those resources that are already there doing the work and strengthening those institutions to
0: better support the families that we serve. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Michael. And just to stay with this example you raised about the Housing Choice Voucher Program as another important federal tool for families to move to opportunity, right? So many of our listeners would be well aware, familiar with the Section 8 program now called Housing Choice Voucher, where families literally awarded what they could consider the golden ticket that you can use this voucher to, in theory, move anywhere you want in a private market where you can get a landlord to accept this voucher. And as you pointed out, Michael, there's simply some landlords who just will not accept the voucher and come up with some kind of reason for that. What we're experiencing as we work here in Cleveland with families who are relocated from a mixed income uh, transformation project is landlords adding in fees to charge, uh, reservation fees, application fees. I heard about one family being asked for a pet deposit when they didn't even have a pet. And so these ways that landlords can put barriers in place to really prevent families from taking advantage of this uh, particular opportunity. And then to Esther's point earlier, you might be holding this ticket, but if you don't have a car or transportation and there's not transit so that you can get around to see these units, or if you're in poor health and therefore you're not in the type of health where you can be getting around to look and search for units, that could become a barrier. So really need to think about the ways in which these systems are connected to each other if we truly want to provide opportunity for families. Richard, let me turn to you. You've been watching the Fair Housing Act um, again, literally since its inception, and efforts to promote it, efforts to stop it. What's your take on this latest revision of the rule? And what would you like listeners to think about?
2: Well, I think there's one one enormous area that we haven't really touched that I think probably has had as much impact on the inequities in the system as any, and that's uh, transportation policy and urban renewal. I think that the extraordinary um, situation that occurred where highways were cut through neighborhoods, minority neighborhoods, and existing homeowners today, in terms of realizing some appreciation and value who are still separated from a lot of the core of downtown, uh, I think with much more enlightened transportation policies, which have to be linked to this kind of thing, And maybe it's an interagency compact um, where transportation dollars, which are so plentiful under the legislation that just got passed, that they probably have more resources to make this thing work, Mm -hmm. uh, certainly than HUD does. Mm -hmm. And uh, I can imagine how many neighborhoods in America that have been cut off from downtown uh, by highways or urban renewal. Which removed many, many owners at that point in lower income neighborhoods where they could have seen the appreciation that followed once they got cleared with market rate housing being built and other kinds of, of uh, tax generating commercial developments, never realized the benefits to their ownership at all. And they got paid a paltry pittance to move out of a neighborhood. And uh, then it was cleared, and then new market rate kinds of things got done. I think that there is a real necessity to take the HUD uh, draft, which I think is fine on its face, as Esther says, it's going to be undersourced in communities. But I think that there's a lot more that could be done in terms of the kinds of things that Buttigieg has been talking about and uh, some of the transportation efforts they're making and trying to overcome some of the inequities with transportation policies as they affect owners values, and uh, it is absolutely the fact that in many, many cities, as we all know, uh, where there was removal uh, and where people living on one side of a highway have much higher values than on the other, uh, simply because of the inequity in the way appraisers go about doing their work, and uh, this is something that we've been seeing over and over again uh for decades i mean i've been at it uh 50 years with mccormick barron but prior to that in legal services in a private law practice uh, i was involved in litigating all kinds of fair housing issues and uh you know the situation isn't much better today than it was then very frankly and uh this whole issue of redlining which is now uh become even more acute mark because of insurance and uh It is a real problem now across the country as insurance companies, as you saw with Allstate and and State Farm getting out of California and not providing any new homeowners insurance in in areas affected by climate change. um, We've got a real mess on our hands. And uh, the idea that folks are going to be able to get uh, insurance uh, is, is becoming more and more difficult as insurance companies keep trying to raise premiums to uh, offset the losses they've suffered from uh, hurricanes and other kinds of uh, uh, systems that have been affected uh, by water and flooding and fires and all the rest of it. Um, we're seeing it now in our uh, work, terrible, terrible increases in insurance premiums. And for homeowners, It just has to make the problem that much worse. Mm -hmm. So these are some of the other aspects of what we've been talking about. But I would really highlight transportation as a major, major area where there needs to be a lot more integration between HUD and the DOT in, in terms of affecting some of the changes to allow for more fair housing and to take advantage of some of the resources they have. I mean, we're working up in Syracuse now with Interstate 81 that was built to separate uh, the minority community of Syracuse from downtown and Syracuse University. It's a very conscious decision that was made back uh, in the 50s and 60s. And Cuomo agreed to take it down. They're moving to do that so that they reconnect the mm-hmm. 15th Ward in Syracuse with the city. Well, the values in the current owners of, uh, uh, of color Is They're probably going to go up 50 or 60 percent in value just by virtue of bringing that highway down. So those are the kinds of things, I think, that could make things a lot better. Uh, But HUD in itself simply can't try to do this by imposing requirements on local government, because I think, as Esther said, it's it's not altogether clear and uh, how they would go about doing that. Um, with really a very meager kind of staff to monitor it, uh, I think would become increasingly difficult. But, you know, it's certainly worth an effort. Mm -hmm.
0: Great. So Richard's given us a specific area for a next action step, which is around transportation policy and thinking about how do we link this policy with transportation policy, transportation resources, whether that be at the federal level or at other uh, levels of localities. Uh, Esther and Michael, let me come back to you all for some specific action step you would like to see happen next, uh, along the lines of the challenges we've. You know, the Biden administration's done the lift of getting this revised rule out. What would you like to see happen next specifically? And Esther, maybe I'll start with you.
3: Sure. So I I think from from our perspective, where where we might be able to be a partner around this is. You know, there are two large aspects of our work. There's the practitioner work and then there's the policy work. And the policy work is fairly new. On the practitioner work, you know, we're in a unique position in that we're national. So we see what's taking place on the ground and how policies are landing in communities. And so being able to use that practitioner work to inform what's taking place on a policy level mm-hmm. and that's where you know our policy and influence work is really starting to take shape what are those policies like the housing choice voucher program which could be an incredible wealth building tool mm-hmm. you know and a policy that we're really really trying to influence right now cra and other uh, resource binding kinds of policies bringing those and strengthening those and working with other national leaders in the space so that we can really really see change in the way systems are are operating and serving our communities and so you know for us that is that's the direction we continue to move in and you know i i think that from you know for our federal partners really keeping their ears and hearts open to practitioners on the ground that are doing this work day in and day out um, and really allowing pra- practice to drive policy.
0: Mm-hmm. And Michael, I'll come to you in one second. Esther, you talked about you've got a, a one part of your function is and a, the biggest part is as a practitioner, you're touching thousands of households across the nation on the ground in neighborhoods and then you talked about your policy influence role. And you're really talking about connecting the two. And I'd love for you to give our listeners, if you can, a more concrete sense. of What does that look like in a particular city when you're actually galvanizing families to help inform policy? What does that actually look like? Could you describe that a little bit?
3: Sure. So I can give a really direct example. Memphis,
0: mm-hmm.
3: you know, our, we've been partnering with the local workforce investment board and come to find out not a single one of our families were receiving benefits from that particular local system. And it turned out that there was one particular rule that was hindering our families from participating, and that was not having a GED. And working with families coming to find out that GED and and HiSET, those kinds of tests are expensive, Right. They take a long time, especially when you're trying to get to work, when you're trying to get into job training, working on your GED is, is tough and, and most people can't take that time off. So the local workforce investment board eliminated that requirement. Mm. It was a policy by a local municipal workforce in, investment authority that through learning from community Dismantled something because it was serving as a barrier to thousands of individuals from getting a critical resource. Because for years, you know, a lot of WIBs that we work with send money back or don't use up all their federal funds. And so this way, you know, a lot more of our families getting access to a really, really critical service that could be career changing.
0: Mm-hmm. And I bet a lot of the listeners right now are thinking, I would love to influence that kind of pivot in my local workforce investment board or another policy. How how did you all pull that off? What, what did it take to convince the local WIB in Memphis to make such a dramatic change?
3: Alignment. So, you know, in Memphis, we have a really, really strong network of community partners. And so we have a shared set of performance measurements. So if individuals aren't getting jobs, if people aren't um, in increasing their, their annual salaries, it is, it's that that is not no longer the responsibility of one organization. It becomes the responsibility of a shared set of partners where we have at the very, very beginning of our initiative there through Choice Neighborhoods create a, a network of service providers where we all pretty much set out that these are our shared performance measurements, we are going to find alignment. And for, with the web, the alignment is we've got bodies. We've got individuals that want training. They need individuals to utilize their training. This made-up barrier is exactly that. It's a made-up barrier that locally and through partnership easily can get rid of to open up the pipeline. Mm-hmm.
0: Thanks, Esther. Michael, let me come to you. We're really talking now about Urban's role given the challenges you all have laid out at the policy level. um, You're all's wheelhouse is about serving families and neighborhoods. Richard talked about the origin of that and the work you're doing, but you are leaning into this policy influence role. So Michael, what would you like to see Urban do as as we move forward in this era?
1: So one particular area is, um, again, just talking about the reach of Urban. Um, We heard today that Urban is they're involved in slightly less than 50% of all choice neighborhood planning grants. And so we're in San Francisco doing work in Fort Worth, uh, Fort Myers, um, Norfolk. And so there's a tremendous reach of expertise and experience that we're learning from working in these individual communities. But one thing, again, I think what Esther mentioned about linkages is that using that reach and linking the mayors and city council members together on, and taking on these issues, having that important dialogue. Uh, one thing I found in my individual work is, you know, you have the mayor's pushing one agenda, but city council is doing something different. And so how do we pull those two together under uniform you know, platform to get things done mm-hmm. and really make sure that these have promote lasting sustainable change. That's the thing I would love to see um, urban and, and get involved within that space.
0: Mm-hmm. Great. Richard, coming to you as as board chair, you get to kind of lay out a, a vision for kind of the trajectory of the organization. And as you laid out kind of some of these big challenges yet to be taken on, but also the role that Urban has now grown into and the position it now holds nationally. What are your kind of goals and expectations for the role that Urban can play?
2: I think that they're well on their way to realizing a lot of it. I mean, the, the impact on families, uh, Mark, has been profound. And one of the things that uh, Urban did, and uh, it was, you know, from the beginning, um, we talked often about data and results-based work mm-hmm. and that, you know, all of the philanthropic money that has gravitated toward urban and has underwritten some of the work they're doing um, has been the result of the fact that they can show what they're doing and the impact they're having in terms of result-based data, which is just extraordinary. And it's one of my real joys being on the board is to hear quarterly reports from one city or another about what they've achieved uh Donovan today presented a set of data about our families' uh family income across uh, a number of sites. Has been spectacular mm-hmm. in terms of what they've done in Baltimore and Perkins, where we're working. You know, the average incomes of those families was about six to eight thousand dollars a year. They're at thirty-seven thousand, I think, was the number I heard today. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's unbelievable what wow. they've done with their case management services. So we are way past the anecdotal benefits of urban in a community, I mean, we're making a real change. And I think the work that they're doing in education and job training and after school programming and healthcare they did an extraordinary job during the pandemic serving the families who had lost employment, whose kids didn't have laptops at home to uh, access what was going on with the schools, uh, was just spectacular work. And so for me, I mean, the impact of being on the ground and then taking it to a public policy level, as Esther just described in Memphis, is where they make a huge difference. And uh, they can influence policy, uh, much as uh, we were able to do with Cisneros and Katz with the Hope 6 program and the mixed income and doing that as a way of taking the lessons we learned in uh, developing and transforming neighborhoods to uh, integrate that into public policy that started to change the way HUD was dealing. And the whole notion of leveraging financing and bringing in private capital and using that as a way of supplanting the old public housing program uh, has made an enormous difference. And uh, we got the support of Gore and Clinton. And, uh, you know, I think they did about $6 billion worth of Hope 6 projects across the United States. Mm -hmm. So that was extraordinary. And that's the kind of thing that I think Esther and Donovan, certainly Michael and his work, all of us are very encouraged by that. And, uh, you know, Mark, you're on the on the earth for only a limited amount of time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the idea that they could affect thousands of families is a pretty damn good thing. And, uh, you know, I'm uh, very, very grateful for the work that they have done. Their staff is terrific. And uh, they uh, they just uh, continue to excel in moving the, the public policy discussions. And, uh, you know, we take a lead from Esther and Donovan and the staff. And sometimes they take a lead from us. Uh, but it's just a pleasure to be part of it and uh, to have seen it grow and expand the way it has. It's just been a real pleasure.
0: Well, as we close out here, uh, one final question for each of you, and it's the way we like to close out our podcast. We've called this podcast Bending the Arc. To really reflect on the work that we think each of us has to do to bend the moral arc of the universe toward justice it's not going to bend itself we got to bend it and we'd like uh, to give each of you an opportunity to do two things one uh make a personal pledge of as you think about the next phase of work um, what do you commit to personally to be a part of bending that arc and then to make an appeal to our listeners, uh, what would you urge for them to do and act in terms of bending the arc? So, uh, who's feeling ready to lead off on that? Maybe Michael. Maybe I'll let you uh, take a lead. What's your your personal pledge, and then your your appeal to our listeners?
1: Um, my personal pledge is to you know continue to support the work of Urban Strategies. Um, I've seen the work that they've done, and I just strongly feel that if urban strategies work in your neighborhood, your neighborhood will improve. Um, they just have that type of impact on neighborhoods when they put boots on the ground. Um, my appeal to others is get involved. Um, the resources are there to improve our neighborhoods in the way that we want to to improve, but it takes people and it takes involvement. We got to follow these legislation acts. Um, 10 school board meetings, um, volunteering to serve. Um, the work to improve their is hard, but it takes our commitment and involvement to get things done. And so my pledge to myself and others is let's get involved and let's do the work and let's see the results that can happen.
0: Beautiful, thanks Michael. Uh, Richard, I'll come to you. I feel a little bad asking a guy who's, who's done it all uh, to make a pledge to do anything. You're like, what more do you want from me? But uh, what would be your personal pledge at this stage? And then what appeal would you make to others?
2: Well, I think it's simply to stay the course. I mean, we're in our 50th year. And, uh, you know, when I started the business in 73, never did I believe that, you know, I'd still be at it 50 years later. And uh, it's been a, you know, a real joy for me and to watch the staff and the people that are working now carry out the uh, the vision of what we're doing and uh, to have the kind of uh, personal integrity and the way in which they relate to community has always been something that was at the center of what we're doing. Uh, and again, like Michael said, I think the real thing is that uh, this is all about the, you know, the, the arc of justice and uh, those that feel so motivated, they need to move on what they believe and get involved. And there are all kinds of ways that can get done. You know, it's like Obama used to say don't boo, vote. And uh, I think that uh, the, the real key is for those that are interested. Uh, I can't imagine a career that's more rewarding than the kind of things that are going on now that Michael is doing, that Esther and Donovan and the strategy staff, ours at McCormick Barron. Uh, you know, they're, they're out there every day working hard to try to make a difference. And uh, that's the important thing, that they, you know, understand the, uh, the universality of, of people. And uh, in the end, you know, it's always been about the kids in these neighborhoods, giving them an opportunity to, to do better and to raise and lift these families in a way Uh, so that they really do have an opportunity in in society. So for us, that's really what it's all about, Mark. You know, this is really all about justice and giving people who have been marginalized for decades the chance to really succeed. And uh, we've seen some extraordinary examples of it every day Mm
0: -hmm. and Mm -hmm. the work
2: that goes on with strategy. So God bless, you know,
0: from Mm -hmm. my perspective. Indeed. Esther, I think with uh, Richard talking about a rewarding, career in community development that pitch he made just now we we're hearing back that pitch he made to you back in uh, 1998 <laughs> in 60 seconds got you to pivot so how about you Esther as you think about uh, a personal pledge you would be willing to make and and appeal to others
3: so a personal pledge is you know we strongly believe in collaboration we cannot do this work on our own and so rather than ask partners what they can do for us i I I pledge that, you know, we, we want to be a good partner. And so to that end, the willingness to share data, to share information, to share what we've learned from our successes. And at times when we have fallen short um, and being willing to share those lessons with the field so that we can be a good collaborator Um, in terms of what I would ask from listeners. So if, if if you're not in this field if you're not in this industry or or even if you are the reality of it is you know we've we've raised a lot of of things that have you know hot button words a okay? racial equity discrimination you know systems disruption what what i would ask from people is to get knowledgeable you know, knowledge is power, and, and there is a lot of bad information out there. And the history of how we got here and why a ruling like AFFH is so important, um, it's important to understand how we got here so that we can do something differently, uh, because what we've been doing hasn't really changed anything and in some respects have made things worse. So get knowledgeable.
0: Beautiful. Thank you, Esther, Michael, Richard. It is truly a privilege uh, to have this conversation with you all. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing. Uh, Esther, in particular, thank you for Urban's commitment to being a part of this podcast series. I think it's going to be very educational for listeners as you just made that appeal. So appreciate you all. Looking forward to further episodes in this and looking forward to seeing each of you at some point in in one of these great cities around our country. Well,
2: thank you for what you're doing. Appreciate it.
1: Really appreciate
0: it. Absolutely. Take care now. Many thanks to Richard Barron, Michael Bowen, and Esther Shin for joining me for this episode of Bending the Arc. Stay tuned for future episodes in this series, spotlighting experiences and insights from the Urban Strategies team. To learn more about the work of USI, please check out their website at urbanstrategiesinc.org. Our podcast is produced and edited by Davey Barris from Case Western Reserve University's Media Vision. Thanks for listening. And thanks for sharing this podcast with anyone you think would enjoy it. We hope you'll join us for future podcast episodes. Until then, keep doing your part to bend the arc.